This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. We'll start off reading from JTA. The first article, This Jewish Dad Got a Version of Anne Frank's Diary Banned from His Florida School District by Andrew Lappin. Bruce Friedman was moved by the diary of Anne Frank when he read it at age nine. As a child in a kosher-keeping Jewish home on Long Island, he saw in the Holocaust memoir an essential lesson for Jewish and non-Jewish children alike. He learned to sympathize, empathize, share the fear and the horror and the fright and disgust. With man's inhumanity to man, he recalled about the book. And it's not just the Nazis, it's the human condition. We're really good at hurting each other. And yet, decades later, Friedman filed a challenge with his local school district in Florida to remove a new version of the diary from classroom shelves. The book he wrote on a district form does disservice to lessons on the Holocaust. He added, in all caps, protect children. Last month, the local school board sided with Friedman and vowed to remove Anne Frank's diary, the graphic, the graphic adaptation, from all grade levels in the district, with a spokesperson saying it was removed based on a state statute. Also removed based on Friedman's challenge, William Styron's Holocaust novel, Sophie's Choice. The successes followed two of hundreds of challenges Friedman has filed against books in Clay County near Jacksonville, where he moved from New York during the pandemic. He has files on thousands more books that others have challenged. From his home there, the Jewish father has become one of the country's most prolific and zealous participants in the movement to purge public schools of certain books. The movement has largely targeted books featuring LGBTQ themes and content about racial equity, while catching books on other topics, including Jewish stories, in its dragnet. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has embedded the values of the movement into state law making it easier for a small number of parents, or even just one, to force their districts to make books inaccessible to students. The movement is most closely associated with a group called Moms of Liberty and inherits its worldview and tactics from decades of Christian family values advocacy. But it turns out its flag bearers can be Jewish dads, too. Friedman recognizes that he stands out. I figured we'd have a lot to talk about, Jew boy, he told JTA. He stands out in another way, too. Unlike many of his fellow book challengers, Friedman, a self-identified bibliophile, insists he reads every book he seeks to remove. He documents his objections as he goes in reams of challenge forms that he stores in his home office. In objecting to a children's biography of Harriet Tubman, for example, he says... Telling them that the Civil War was all about slavery is a lie. The picture book, Arthur's Birthday, featuring the cartoon Aardvark, was bad in his view because it's not appropriate to discuss spin the bottle with elementary school children. To Friedman, Americana, a prize-winning novel by Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie about the immigrant experience, is a horrible piece of garbage. Reading from his own file on the book, he listed off its problems, attempted suicide, immigration fraud, promiscuity, infidelity, abortion, racism, sex, critical race theory. 
For months, Friedman has battled the Clay County School Board over books, even becoming a conservative folk hero when his antics at a school board meeting drew censure. This week, when Friedman attempted to read from the Mindy McGinnis novel Heroin about the opioid crisis, board members cut off his microphone, telling him there were children present. When he attempted to keep reading, two police officers escorted him from the podium. Yet, a newer board member has frequently taken his side, recently describing every single book we've banned as filthy, filthy pornography, and adding people who tell you different have not read the books, period. Recently, the board met to revise its book policy, but a school district official said Friedman would complicate the task. Mr. Friedman's erratic and inconsistent challenges make it impossible for us to predict and devise a solution, the school district's chief academic officer, Roger Daly, told the board during its September 26th workshop. I don't know that there is a way to satisfy him. More than 60% of all book challenges nationwide in the 2021-22 school year came from just 11 people. In this context, the volume of Friedman's challenges carry weight far beyond his own district, and he's only picked up the pace since. He's been incredibly successful, said Taslin Magnuson, who researches school book bans for the literary free speech group Pen America and considers Friedman one of the biggest players in a movement she seeks as attacking public education. He's by far the best example of how this is not about the books, but this is about destroying the system. Friedman's allies, too, say he is making an outsized impact. He's an amazing person, very patient, compassionate, and really wanted to dig into the issue of the books, said Alana Yaron Fishbein, the founder of No Left Turn in Education, which has a list of books it deems problematic. Friedman is the group's Florida chapter head, with his master list of every book challenged in every district, Fishbein said. He really went above and beyond. Friedman is not the only Jew who is active in the book challenge movement. There is Fishbein, an Israeli-born mother and a former employee of the Philadelphia Jewish Federation, who founded No Left Turn in Education in 2020 to combat what she says is a leftist agenda in public and private schools. And Brooke Weiss, a Jewish mother from Charlotte, North Carolina, is a lead organizer in Moms for Liberty. Weiss told JTA she has never challenged a book herself but she helped put together the group's first-ever conference earlier this year, attended by several Republican presidential candidates. Yet Friedman, who is involved in both groups, stands out for the sheer volume and intensity of his challenges. He is responsible for more than a third of all challenges in Florida and for 94% of the challenges in his district, which has acceded to hundreds of his requests to pull books and has removed more books than any other in the state as a result. He insists that his efforts are on behalf of children like his own, whom he pulled from public school when they lived back in New York, out of concerns about what the child was learning there. I want all lessons in all schools to respect innocence, Friedman told JTA. Friedman said his father was a Navy veteran who worked printing art for periodicals, while his mother worked a variety of jobs, including as an accountant, seamstress, and Yiddish teacher. He celebrated his bar mitzvah in Jerusalem, visiting the Western Wall. His parents, who were still alive, raised him conservative, leaning Orthodox. 
He now participates in Jewish life via his local Chabad Lubavitch Center, and they imparted other values too. My house that I grew up in was filled with books, and I had unfettered access to everything, Friedman said. I was the kind of guy who would stay close to librarians. The library was my happy place. Now, looking back, he says the unfettered access wasn't always to his benefit. He's challenged Slaughterhouse-Five, the classic by Kurt Vonnegut about the bombing of Dresden during World War II, which he said he wrongly appreciated as a 12-year-old. When I read it, I had no regard for my own innocence, he said. Friedman attended multiple colleges in New York, in the New York area, and worked as a construction manager in New York. He became radicalized by what he saw in public schools a decade ago when his wife's son entered kindergarten on Long Island. Schools in New York and around the country had recently adopted the Common Core, a set of educational standards meant to unify and improve what is taught across districts and states. The standards had drawn backlash from conservatives who saw them as trampling on the principle of local control of schools. People from across the ideological spectrum also argued that, in language presaging the book ban movement, the standards were not always age-appropriate for children. Friedman said the standards caused his now stepson to experience considerable harm, declining to offer specifics. The couple pulled him from public school and enrolled him in an evangelical Christian school that eschewed the common core. The school's outlook was also new for Friedman's wife, who was raised Catholic, and the religious approach was not his own. I was born a Jew, I will die a Jew, Friedman said, but the family loved the school. When he saw Fishbein talking about no left turn on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show following the 2020 racial justice protests, he knew he had found his new cause. Friedman moved his family from New York to Florida during the pandemic in pursuit of less tyrannical, more favorable governance and in the spirit of liberty. He noted that while he doesn't regret the move, he does miss his family and the pizza. His arrival in Florida came just as DeSantis was making parents' rights a legislative priority. The timing was perfect for him to inaugurate No Left Turn's presence in that state. When Friedman and his family moved to Florida, he made the decision to put his son, now in high school, back in public school, believing that his evangelical education had given him a very good moral base that would insulate him from danger. But he forbade his stepson from ever using the school library and threw himself into monitoring the library's contents. There were so many parents out there, Friedman reasoned, who didn't have time to thoroughly monitor their children's media consumption like he did. Even if most of the parents might be fine with their kid reading the occasional racy book passage, some might not be. It's not the kids that have a wicked dark sense of humor like I was, he said, describing the child he pictures in his head when he files his challenges. It's for the sheltered little people who have parents who are so concerned with their souls that they don't want them harmed. Friedman soon began reading school library books in his spare time, searching for objectionable content he he could denounce, and scouring negative online reviews for more dirt on the books. He has turned the book challenge process into a science, filing flurries of official request forms, often with only one or two words of objection listed on them, which under state law must be considered by a formal review committee. He also has the ability to appeal any decision the committee makes, and usually does, if the decision doesn't involve removing the book. Recently, he says he landed a local job, but he has kept up the book challenges. Employment has not slowed me, he said. 
I have the time to devote because I am a very motivated and determined person and also because I don't eat or sleep as I ought to. For the book challenges Friedman doesn't author, he volunteers to serve on the committee that will decide their fates as a parent representative. He then attends public board meetings to hammer home his objections in person. He went viral last year when he attempted to read aloud from a memoir by author Alice Siebold at one board meeting as part of his justification for why he wanted it removed from the district. As Friedman began reciting Siebold's graphic accounting of sexual assault, the board cut off his mic, warning him not to read pornography during a meeting being streamed to the public. Hush your mouth and listen, the school board attorney instructed him. This was hypocrisy, Friedman thought. If he can't read a book out loud at a public board meeting because it's pornographic, why should that same book be available in public school libraries? Thanks in part to Friedman's inspiration, reading objectionable book passages aloud at school board meetings has since become a tried and true tactic for activists who want books removed. Recent legislation in Florida even encourages such behavior by requiring boards to remove the book if they cut off such a reading for obscenity concerns. The intensity of the efforts to ban books in Clay County has alarmed some educators there. One of the courses that I teach is on the Holocaust, a district history teacher said during a school board meeting last year, speaking against the district's mass book removal spurred on by Friedman. Do I need to paint you a picture? The picture is exactly what Friedman didn't like about the illustrated version of the Diary of Anne Frank, which was adapted by Ari Fulman and David Polonsky and published in 2018 by the foundation that controls the diary's copyright. In an image inspired by a passage in Frank's original diary, she shares a brief memory of a same-sex attraction which was unacceptable to Friedman. The fact that little Anne Frank once had some lesbian thoughts that made their way into her diary does that help a kid learn the horrors of Holocaust or inhumanity? No. So what is it helping the kid learn, he asked. Employing a term sometimes used as part of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric, he, that describes adults training children to accept sexual abuse, he added. As far as I'm concerned, it's grooming. Friedman's opposition to the book distinguishes him from Fishbein, who said she supports only some of Friedman's challenges, such as one for the frequently challenged graphic novel Gender Queer. The Anne Frank adaptation is a different story. We do not oppose the use of this book in school, she said. Friedman himself has taken to clarifying in his challenges that he is not acting on behalf of no left turn, even as he continues to use an email address associated with the group. Yet his campaign against Anne Frank's diary, the graphic adaptation, has caught on. Since Friedman first pushed his district to review the book this past winter, another Florida district removed it outright after it was challenged by a Moms for Liberty member there. Last month, a school in Texas fired a teacher who reportedly read it aloud to her 8th grade students. Critics of Friedman's movement say it builds on a history of censorship that has always boded ill for the Jews. Copies of Jewish Texts have been burned by anti-Semitic regimes throughout history, including France in the 1200s and the Roman Inquisition in the 1500s. The Nazis led a campaign not only to burn Jewish books, but also to wipe out what they deemed degenerate art, which often meant, if not works by Jews, 
than modernist pieces the regime consider to be vulgar or not generally supportive of their aims. There are parallels with book burnings. Aaron Herschel Shapiro, an instructor of Jewish American literature at Middle Tennessee State University, told JTA about the contemporary movement. The rhetoric alone makes that clear. The books and the ideas they contain are framed as some sort of cultural contagion that must be purged. That's a bit on the nose, no? The Association of Jewish Libraries has come out against the movement that Friedman represents. Book bans result in the suppression of history and distortion of readers' understanding of the world around them, the group said in a statement last year. Despite the fact that at least one Moms for Liberty chapter has quoted Hitler in its communications, Weiss says she sees her movement as actually safeguarding Jewish stories and students. She became in involved in Moms for Liberty after her daughter was asked on a quiz about the Octavia Butler novel Kindred to compare slavery and the Holocaust. The correct answer was that slavery was just as horrible over a much longer duration, which Weiss said was Holocaust minimizing. Still, she said, even my mother has made the claim that this organization is anti-Semitic. Some of the most prominent Jews in the book-banning movement reject any uncomfortable historical resonances. If we are talking about removing gender queer from the school, why does that not work well for the Jews? Fishbein said. What does that have to do with Jews or not Jews? Friedman, too, rejects the criticism which he said in an email is coming from misinformed people that feel it's a precursor to the next Kristallnacht referring to the pogrom that is considered the start of the Holocaust. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you, Andrew, represent your Jewish publication, the JTA, you might feel that everything else on earth is about Jewishness, he said. The only thing Jewish about my efforts is that they seem to connect with our people's passion for justice. Friedman is continuing his challenges at a full pace, and told the board at its September meeting that he would continue doing so until it established a rubric and a guideline for how to better deal with content he believes is pornographic. This month, he filed one for Antonio Iturbe's young adult Holocaust novel, The Librarian of Auschwitz. The book is based on the true story of the Jewish Auschwitz survivor, Dita Krauss, who as a teenager guarded a slim volume of smuggled books in the death camp's children unit, so that the kids would have something to read. Krauss is still alive today. Friedman's challenge to the book, which he shared with JTA, doesn't mention Krauss's quest to protect children's books from Nazis. Instead, he quotes from sections describing nude, emaciated Auschwitz prisoners and Jewish corpses, passages which he believes are inappropriate for all age levels. A message to the board further articulating his objections suggests that his main issue with the book is that it mentions the Holocaust at all. Unsupervised forays into the horrors of the Holocaust can be traumatizing for children, he writes. They are almost certain to have some impact on a child. I wouldn't necessarily expect this impact to be positive. Elsewhere, he repeats his familiar objections. Protect children, he writes in all caps, damaged souls. Emily Knox, a University of Illinois professor who researches book challenges, told JTA the movement's ambitions are inherently at odds with learning about the Holocaust. The issue with challengers is that they want books to be pure. So what they will say is, why would someone put this terrible thing in a book, she said. 
but it's impossible to have a clean book on the Holocaust. That's not something that exists unless you decenter the Jewish experience in the Holocaust. New laws on the horizon would open the door to even more book challenges. Over the summer, Florida passed a new law that allows any county resident, not just parents, to challenge any book in the district. If even a single challenge claims a book contains sexual content, that book would have to be pulled immediately until a further review can be taken. One book that Friedman personally says he doesn't plan to challenge is a Holocaust work that has become a symbol of the broader bookman movement. Art Spiegelman's graphic memoir, Mouse, which relays the experiences of his father's survival of the Holocaust, last year was removed from a middle school lesson plan in Tennessee after the board objected to some of its illustrations and has been on the chopping block in other districts in Missouri and Iowa. But just like with the Diary of Anne Frank, Friedman has positive memories of reading the book as a teen. I absorbed it immediately. I thought it was fantastic, Friedman recalled. As far as graphic novels go and history lessons at the same time, it's probably one of the very best. Still, he said he's fine with local efforts to remove the book from schools, even if it comes at a cost to Jews. That's local control, he said. That's the way it's supposed to work, even if their reasons are racist, even if they want that book gone because they don't want any sympathy for Jews and they hate them. That's local control. Next from JTA, Diane Feinstein was a woman of valor, Rabbi says, at San Francisco Memorial Service by Emma Goss. San Francisco, and this is originally from Jay, the Jewish News of Northern California. Diane Feinstein was an Eshet Chayil, a Hebrew term for a woman of valor. Rabbi Jonathan Singer proclaimed at his opening remarks Thursday at a memorial service for the U.S. Senator who died September 29th at 90. The event outside San Francisco City Hall was attended by about 1,500 invited guests, all gathered to remember a path-breaking politician who spent a decade as the city's first woman mayor. Singer, the co-senior rabbi of Congregation Emmanuel, the same synagogue where Feinstein, then Diane Goldman, was confirmed as a teenager in 1949, shared the English words of Psalm 23, which begins, God is my shepherd. Cantor Raz Barak, Emmanuel's Cantor Emerita, sang the psalm in Hebrew. She feared no evil as she courageously pursued justice as a leader in the Senate, Singer said. And she gave us hope that we Americans can always be inspired by the values of democracy, even as we walk at times through the Valley of Shadows. San Francisco Mayor London Breed, Vice President Kamala Harris, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and Senator Chuck Schumer were among the prominent speakers. President Joe Biden delivered a recorded message. God bless a great American hero. She was something else, Biden said. She was a dear friend. The service took place on an exceptionally hot San Francisco day, punctuated by the Blue Angels flying overhead as part of Fleet Week, which Feinstein was responsible for establishing in 1981 to honor the armed forces. Fleet Week would be dedicated to you, Pelosi noted, as the roar of the jets caused her to pause. Many of the guests, including current and former members of Congress, accented their formal attire with sun hats and baseball caps and fanned themselves with the memorial programs as the sun beat down. A building-sized portrait of Feinstein was displayed outside City Hall, 
where Feinstein lay in state on Wednesday before a private, family-only burial after the service. In his remarks, Schumer told a story about his colleague, recalling how she called him in New York shortly after his daughter Allison moved to San Francisco. Does your daughter have anywhere to go for the high holiday services? Feinstein asked him. He replied that she did not. Well, then she's going to services with me. Feinstein and her third husband, Richard Bloom, joined Reform Congregation Sheriff Israel in 1992, although it is unknown how long they were members. Schumer worked closely with Feinstein to pass the federal ban on assault weapons in 1994. Diane Feinstein was a leader of uncommon integrity, the New York senator said. Harris described Feinstein as an American patriot, a giant of the Senate, and a dear friend to her and her husband, Doug Emhoff. Diane commanded respect, and she gave respect. She was a serious and gracious person who welcomed debate and discussion, but always required that it was well-informed and studied, the vice president said. Pelosi said Feinstein was not only a close colleague in Congress, but also a good neighbor in Pacific Heights, their San Francisco neighborhood. Diane loved cultivating people and flowers, Pelosi said, describing the hydrangeas growing in Feinstein's yard as the most fabulous. She also knew the senator to be quite the matchmaker and credits her with pairing former Governor Jerry Brown and his wife, Anne Gust. Feinstein was also an avid painter, giving her friends mugs and painted images of her home, homegrown flowers, Pelosi said. Pelosi read off a list of legacies Feinstein leaves behind, including fighting to save San Francisco's cable cars, authorize, uh, authoring legislation to create the breast cancer stamp that benefited research, doggedly battling to pass the federal assault weapons ban, and starting the annual Lake Tahoe Summit with former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid in 1997. She left on her own terms, Pelosi said, recalling Feinstein's final vote a day before she died. She walked into the Senate floor and voted to advance legislation to keep the government open for the people, she said. John Burton, who served in Congress and the State Assembly and chaired the Democratic Party in California, provided written remarks read aloud by Breed. She had chutzpah and I loved her for it, Burton wrote. Eileen Mariano, Feinstein's 31-year-old granddaughter, and the final speaker at the hour-long memorial service, described the warm, grandmotherly woman she was behind the scenes. Feinstein would cut her granddaughter's hair in her kitchen, often slightly crooked, Mariano joked. She taught me to play chess, although she hated losing, she remembered, and would sing You Are My Sunshine as a lullaby. We had an effortless connection, said Mariano, who works in the San Francisco mayor's office. Among the Jewish elected officials in attendance were Senator Barbara Boxer, who was elected alongside Feinstein in 1992, becoming the first Jewish woman to win seats in the Senate, the first Jewish women to win seats in the Senate, California State Senator Scott Weiner, San Francisco Supervisor Aaron Peskin, Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg, Representative Adam Schiff of Southern California, and Senator John Ossoff of Georgia. Let's remember what she meant to San Francisco, Weiner said in a statement. She became mayor during one of the most difficult periods imaginable for the city. She led San Francisco out of the fires of political assassinations, mass cult suicides, 
and a mass die-off of gay men due to a new terrifying virus. Heading out after the memorial, Steinberg stopped to share his thoughts. She represented the best in Jewish values, he said. As a public service, she embodied what we need more of in this country, leaders who have strong values, who fight but fight in the right way, and are always looking for common ground. And the one thing that matters more than anything else, accomplish something on behalf of the people. That was Diane Feinstein. And next from JTA, Variety to hold Hollywood Summit on Anti-Semitism with Fran Drescher, Mark Marone, Alex Edelman, and other stars by Jackie Hodgdenberg. Variety Magazine is holding a star-studded Hollywood Summit focused on addressing anti-Semitism through inclusive storytelling, thought leadership, and advocacy. Actor, producer, and SAG after president Tran Drescher will deliver an opening keynote address at the day-long event on October 18th. Subsequent panel discussions will cover topics ranging from the history of Jews in Hollywood to combating anti-Semitism through comedy and social media. The reason we decided to pursue something of this magnitude and scale is simple yet vital and urgent, Claudia Eller, Variety's chief production officer, said in a statement on Thursday. We wanted to encourage candid discussions about anti-Semitism, its disgraceful proliferation in the modern era, and how to encourage more thoughtful and accurate representation throughout the industry. Our hope for the day is to bring people together to make change happen. One panel is titled The State of Anti-Semitism and features prominent TV producers. Another, led by film historian Neil Gabler and Mad Men creator Matthew Weiner, will tackle the industry's Jewish history and anti-Semitism during its early years. Tiffany Haydish, Ike Barinholtz, Alex Edelman, and Mark Marone will participate in another panel on how to use comedy to open up discourse on contemporary anti-Semitism. Juliana Margolis will discuss her own personal experiences of anti-Semitism. Variety will also publish a series of online essays in conjunction with the event, including writings, uh, writings by Marone, Kiss frontman Gene Simmons, Beanie Feldstein, Mayim Bialik, Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt, and more. Next from JTA, American tourist arrested for smashing Roman-era statues at Israeli Museum by Jackie Hajnenberg. An American tourist was arrested in Israel for allegedly destroying two Roman-era statues inside the Israel Museum, claiming to police that they were idolatrous and contrary to the Torah. The suspect's alleged actions caused substantial damage to the nearly 2,000-year-old pieces, police said. Police officers were called to the prestigious Jerusalem Cultural Institution Thursday evening after a visitor, identified as a 40-year-old American Jewish man, intentionally smashed the statues, which were part of the permanent exhibition in the museum's archaeology wing. The museum provided a photo of a stick they said the suspect was carrying as he walked through the museum, and which he may have used to damage the statues according to the Times of Israel. The damaged sculptures dated to the 2nd century and depicted the head of the goddess Athena, the Roman Minerva, and what appeared to be a statue of a griffin clutching the wheel of fate, representing the goddess Nemesis. 
The damaged statues are being repaired by the museum's conservation department, and the museum was open to the public on Friday morning. The Israel Museum considers this incident a troubling and unusual event. A statement from the museum said, The museum's management condemns all forms of violence and hopes such incidents will not recur. Despite the suspect's assertion to police about the statue's idolatrous nature, his lawyer, Nick Kaufman, denied that his client had acted out of religious fanaticism. The suspect's name is not being released due to a gag order, according to the Associated Press. Instead, Kaufman claimed that his client was suffering from Jerusalem Syndrome, a mental phenomenon seen in tourists to the city and characterized by religious excitement induced by proximity to the holy places of Jerusalem. According to a paper written in 2000 by a group of Israeli researchers, he has been ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. Rabbinic legend has it that Abraham, the biblical patriarch, smashed his father's idols and aversion to idol worship has historically been a strong impulse among traditionally observant Jews. However, in the present day, virtually no Jewish authorities endorse smashing idols or vandalizing cultural or religious institutions. But this is not the first time this year that non-Jewish religious objects have been damaged in Jerusalem. In February, an American tourist was arrested for damaging a statue of Jesus inside the Old City, and in January, two Israeli teenagers defaced 30 tombstones at a prominent Old City Christian cemetery. This is a shocking case of the destruction of cultural values, said Eli Escusido, director of the Israeli Antiquities Authority. We see with concern the fact that cultural values are being destroyed by religiously motivated extremists. Next from JTA, amid Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, Armenian synagogue defaced and local anger over Israeli arms sales to Azerbaijan grows by Gabe Friedman. Vandals threw red paint on an Armenian synagogue Tuesday in the latest sign of increasing tensions between Armenia and Israel as Israeli arms sales have fueled Azerbaijan's offensive in the contested Nagorno-Karabakh region. The paint was smeared on the Mordechai Navi Jewish Religious Center in Yerevan, what is thought to be the only synagogue in Armenia's capital city. Most estimates put the number of Jews in Armenia at a few hundred. The Conference of European Rabbis, an organization of Orthodox rabbis led by the exiled former chief rabbi of Moscow, Pinchas Goldschmidt, tied the act of vandalism to posts it shared from a nationalist Armenian group that had circulated on pro-Armenian social media pages at the time. The Jews are the enemies of the Armenian nation, complicit in Turkish crimes and the regime of Aliyev, stained with the blood of the Republic of Armenia and Artsakh. One post read, referring to the Azerbaijani president Ilham Aliyev. The Jewish state provides weapons to Aliyev's criminal regime, and Jews from America and Europe actively support him, the post continued, according to the Conference of European Rabbis. If Jewish rabbis in the United States and Europe continue to support Aliyev's regime, we will continue to burn their synagogues in other countries. Every rabbi will be a target for us. No Israeli Jew will feel safe in these countries. Despite that threat, the Armenian synagogue that was defaced and not burned on Tuesday, according to reports and photos from the scene. 
Israeli and Azerbaijan have developed close relations in recent years, as Azerbaijan provides Israel with approximately 40% of its oil reserves. According to reports, Israel supplied up to 70% of Azerbaijan's military arsenal in the years leading up to 2020. The Associated Press reported on Thursday that Azerbaijani cargo planes were seen leaving Israel last month. Israeli officials have said that the arms relationship is partly due to Azerbaijan's geographic proximity to Iran, a country that routinely calls for violence against Israel. We have a strategic partnership to contain Iran, Arkady Milman, former uh, Israel ambassador to Azerbaijan, told AP. Over the past two weeks, more than 100,000 ethnic Armenians have fled Magorno-Karbakh after Azerbaijani troops began fighting with Armenian rebels, reigniting a conflict that flared in 2020 and left thousands of fighters dead. The region, which is part of Azerbaijan but has a population that is ethnically and culturally tied to Armenia, was also the site of a war in the 1990s after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Armenian officials have begun to express concern over Israel's military support of Azerbaijan. For us, it is a major concern that Israeli weapons have been firing at our people, Armenian ambassador to Israel Arman Akopian told AP. I don't see why Israel should not be in the position to express at least some concern about the fate of people being expelled from their homeland. Azerbaijan has also taken steps to cultivate ties with global Jewish groups, including the Conference of European Rabbis, which is slated to hold a meeting in Baku in November. The Rabbinical Center of Europe, a group of European rabbis associated with the Hasidic Chabad Lubavitch movement, issued a statement last month condemning Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan for using the word genocide to describe the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Pashinyan also told Agence France-Presse that Azerbaijani troops have created a ghetto in the disputed region. Senior Armenian government officials employed the language and comparisons that are appropriate solely to describe the deliberate, systematic, and largest genocide in the history of mankind, which the Jewish people have been subjected to, the Holocaust, the statement read. Words such as ghetto, genocide, holocaust, and the like are in no uncertain terms inappropriate to be part of the jargon used in any kind of political disagreement. Usage of these terms belittles the terrible suffering experienced by the holocaust victims and the entire Jewish people. And next we go over to the New York Jewish Week, how to pack a $38.1 million Hebrew Bible for its trip from New York City to Israel. Carefully by Julia Gergeli. After a whirlwind trip around the, robe, uh, around the globe, the Codex Sassoon, the world's oldest nearly complete Hebrew Bible and the most expensive book ever sold was packed up in New York on Tuesday to head to its permanent home, Anu, Museum of the Jewish People in Tel Aviv. It was a fantastic day, said Shulamith Bahat, CEO of Anu America, who oversaw the packing and will fly to Israel with the Codex. I've seen it many times, but this was the first time I had seen it since I knew it was coming to Israel. It's just elevated to a totally new place. 
The Codex Sassoon, which originated in Syria some 1,100 years ago, became the most expensive book ever sold when it drew a record price of $38.1 million at the Sotheby's New York auction in May. Alfred Moses, a former U.S. ambassador to Romania, bought it on behalf of American Friends of Anu as a gift to the museum. At a farewell event at Sotheby's Upper East Side headquarters on Tuesday afternoon, a trained Sotheby's art handler wrapped the Bible in layers of Tyvek, a synthetic breathable paper that's often used in construction. He then placed it inside a specialty archival cardboard box, which was itself wrapped in more layers of Tyvek. Then the box with the 25-pound 800 parchment page book inside was carefully placed in a suitcase for its journey to the Jewish state. The packing was like a symbolic thing, Bahat told the New York Jewish Week. It was fascinating to me that so many people were interested in seeing it off. It was like sending off someone that you care very much about that you don't want to be apart from. But you know you'll be able to see it and you know that you're going to the right place. Sharon Lieberman-Mintz, the senior Judaica specialist at Sotheby's and the consultant on the record-breaking sale, told the New York Jewish Week that saying farewell to the Codex Sassoon was a little bittersweet. But it's found such a wonderful new home and I'm really excited about it. There are millions of people who are excited on the Israel side and there is tremendous enthusiasm for this book to be available to the public at the Anu Museum, she said. It was a total triumph for the Codex to go to such a great place. Like many travelers to Israel, the Codex Sassoon will travel via El Al, Israel's national airline, which is the appropriate company to take it, Bahat said. The pilot who was flying it said it's like the Codex is making Aliyah. Details about which New York Tel Aviv flight the Codex is on, as well as where in the airplane it may be, buckled in a first-class seat, joining other more pedestrian luggage in the cargo hold are not being released for security purposes. The book is set to arrive in Israel by October 10th, when an opening celebration is planned for the Codex Sassoon's permanent exhibit. The ancient Bible was temporarily displayed at Anu in March before its purchase. Bahat said she knew it had to come back to the museum, and started working with Moses as a strategic donor to help the museum acquire it at auction. This is the right place for it to be, in Israel and at the Museum of the Jewish People, she said. This book is the crown of the Jewish story, and we were telling the entire story of the Jewish people. Bahat added that the Codex Sasson's journey coincides with Simchat Torah, the holiday that marks the conclusion of the reading of the Torah, which this year is on Sunday, October 8th. We couldn't do it on Simchat Torah, so we wanted to do it as close as possible because that is the greatest joy, she said. So, on October 10th, we start a new journey. We open the exhibit, and it's the first time that the public at large from everywhere in the world will be able to see this book. It does something to people that is beyond, in my opinion, comprehension, she said of the Codex. Every Jew is connected to it, and every person in the world is connected to it. And next from JTA Synagogue, bomb threats continued despite arrest of a suspect by Andrew Lappin. A Jewish center in Durham, North Carolina, evacuated its occupants after receiving a fake bomb threat on Tuesday 
one week after the arrest of a suspect accused of directing a series of such threats at synagogues across the country. Since the summer, dozens of Jewish institutions across America have been targeted with fake bomb threats, according to the Anti-Defamation League. The ADL said it had identified three new threats at Jewish locations across North Carolina this week, including Tuesdays. The suspect who was arrested last week, Eddie Manuel Nunez Santos, was a Peruvian national who made more than 150 threats, mostly by email against synagogues and other buildings, both Jewish and non-Jewish, across five different states in September, the FBI said. The period when he sent threats included Rosh Hashanah, which took place in mid-September. The bomb threats, the FBI said, after Santos tried and failed to solicit child pornography. Phone numbers that were sent along with the threats belonged to teenage girls who had rejected or cut off contact with him. But Nunez Santos's activity did not account for all the hoax threats Jewish institutions have received in July, according to ADL reports. And the incident at the Jewish community campus in Durham, which led to the evacuation of a reform synagogue, a Jewish day school, and the JCC all located on the campus, demonstrated that such threats have continued even with that suspect in custody. According to the Secure Community Network, a security firm monitoring Jewish institutions, that partners with the ADL. There has been a noticeable downturn in such threats since the high holidays and Nunez Santos's arrest, but SEN also expects more threats to be made. Jewish institutions dealt with previous waves of fake threats in 2017 and 2020. While a certain number of incidents have been attributed to that arrested individual, the uh, uptick In swatting incidents and bomb threats is not just a trend from recent months, but recent years, and they are continuing. SCN Director and CEO Michael Masters told JTA in a statement, Our arrest will not, nor has not, stopped what has emerged as a tactic for fear and disruption. Masters said SCN was communicating with federal law enforcement, and intelligence partners on next steps to address the epidemic of false threats to Jewish institutions, which attract a response by law enforcement. Since at least as early as 2017, the Jewish community has been targeted with waves of bomb threats, often facilitated by advanced communications technology, Todd Gutnick, an ADL spokesman, told JTA. Unfortunately, this trend is likely to continue. And next from JTA, ADL to resume advertising on Elon Musk's X after weeks of his attacks by Ben Sales. Following weeks during which Elon Musk has attacked the Anti-Defamation League and threatened to sue it for billions of dollars, the Jewish Civil Rights Group announced that it would resume advertising on X, the social media platform Musk owns. In a statement Wednesday, the ADL said X, along with similar sites, still has a serious issue with anti-Semites and other extremists using these platforms to push their hateful ideas and, in some cases, bully Jewish and other users. But the group cited declarations by the leadership of X, which Musk renamed from Twitter, that it would combat anti-Semitism. Musk has had live-stream conversations recently with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as a group of largely right-leaning Jewish men in which he spoke out against anti-Semitism, while also emphasizing his commitment to free speech. Also last week, ex-CEO Linda Yaccarino said the platform is taking steps to counter anti-Semitism.
We appreciate X's stated intent over the last few weeks to address anti-Semitism and hate on the platform, the ADL statement said. This has been useful. More needs to be done. And as we have with other uh, companies in the spirit of collaboration, we are hopeful that we can continue to engage with X on this important matter. Musk and the ADL have been at odds for about a year. Soon after Musk's takeover of the platform in 2022, the ADL encouraged companies to pause their ad spending on the site in protest of Musk removing guardrails against hate speech, though at one point the ADL resumed its own paid ads on the platform. About a month ago, Musk launched into a series of attacks on the ADL, accusing its call for an ad boycott of depleting half the company's value. He threatened to sue the ADL for billions of dollars and reacted to posts by white supremacists on the platform, though he also wrote that he is pro-free speech, but against anti-Semitism of any kind. In subsequent weeks, he had the public conversations with Netanyahu and the panel of Jewish men. In its statement, the ADL repeated points its CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, had made previously in recent interviews with JTA and other outlets, including that it wants to work with platforms to address anti-Semitism in a meaningful way, that it is committed to opposing hate across the political spectrum, and that it is not the driving force behind X's significant loss of ad revenue. To be clear, any allegation that ADL has somehow orchestrated a boycott of X or caused billions of dollars of losses to the company or is pulling the strings for other advertisers is false, the statement said. Indeed, we ourselves were advertising on the platform until the anti-ADL attacks began a few weeks ago. We now are preparing to do so again to bring about to bring our important message on fighting hate to X and its users. Musk reacted to the statement in two brief posts. Thank you for clarifying that you support advertising on X, he wrote, and also very much appreciate that ADL has bought advertising on X. Two more Agan Shaila works returned as Manhattan DA's office turns its attention to work seized by Nazis, by Jackie Hajnenberg. For decades, the heirs of Viennese Jewish cabaret performer Fritz Grunbaum have sought the restitution of his extensive art collection, which was pilfered by the Nazis. This year, they have seen a spate of successes. The return of two portraits, two portraits by Austrian expressionist Egon Schiele was announced Wednesday, two weeks after Grunbaum's heirs repossessed seven other Schiele works from a number of prominent museums and collections in New York City. The heirs credit this accomplishment to Matthew Bogdanos, who founded and leads the Antiquities Trafficking Unit in the office of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. In addition to working on Holocaust-era art restitution, Bogdanos, an assistant district attorney, has repatriated more than 1,000 antiquities since he founded the unit in 2017. It takes courage to take on important American institutions, Ray Dow, the attorney for Grunbaum's heirs, told JTA and a prosecutor who's willing to do that is exceedingly rare. The two paintings whose return was announced this week, Girl with Black Hair and Portrait of a Man, were housed at Oberlin College and the Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh, respectively. In September, the group of seven Shiela paintings and drawings were returned in an emotional ceremony at Bragg's office. Another two pieces were returned to the family in 2018, via a civil ruling of the New York Court of Appeals and were put up for a charity auction through Christie's in 2022.
I'm pleased these two pieces are being returned to the family of Fritz Grunbaum following a criminal investigation by my office, Bragg said in a statement this week. The evidence makes clear the two drawings were stolen by the Nazis and subsequently transported into Manhattan before landing in these museums. We are proud to have now returned nine Egon Schiele drawings to Mr. Grunbaum's relatives and continue to reflect on his indelible legacy. Grunbaum and his wife Elizabeth were killed in the Holocaust and the restitution of his art collection, which contained a total of 81 Scheller works, has been a decades-long process. Once the provenance of the works has been established, which is itself a challenge, lawyers must compel the institutions that hold the pieces to return them. The co-executors of Grunbaum's estate, Timothy Reef and David Frankel, are the second generation of heirs involved in the restitution of Grunbaum's art collection. Reef's mother, Rita Reef, who died in June, was a New York Times columnist on antiques and auctions, and she later took on the mission of reacquiring the artworks that were looted from Grunbaum. Her husband, Paul Reef, who died in 1978, was a composer from Vienna who was Grunbaum's cousin and co-wrote operettas with him. At first, the restitution effort focused on civil litigation, but the recent string of successes has come after a turn to criminal proceedings. Twenty-five years ago, the heirs had also found some success in criminal court when the DA's office issued a subpoena preventing the transfer of two Shelley works from the Museum of Modern Art to a muse museum in Austria. The office began a criminal investigation into the piece's provenance, and they were both seized, but neither went back immediately to the Grunbaum heirs. One of the two was eventually returned in 2019. Working on behalf of the family since 2005, Dowd said that the shift from civil to criminal cases has moved the restitution process along much quicker. But the judge's order from the 2018 civil case also helped move the criminal investigation along. Following the 2018 ruling, the DA's office began investigating, and then they dug deeper than ever than we ever did, Dowd said. There's only so much civil lawyers can do, so it's not like I handed them a case tied up in a bow. At the head of that investigation was Bogdanos, a homicide prosecutor and retired Marine colonel whose office had recovered more than 4,500 uh, 4, items stolen from more than 30 countries, valued at over $410 million, according to the DA. What started as a unit of one employee has since grown to a team of 18. When it comes to the Shelley works, too, he has reached beyond Manhattan. While the seven pieces returned to Grunbaum's heirs last month were all on display or held in New York City-based museums or galleries, the two drawings returned Wednesday came from institutions outside of the five boroughs. But the Manhattan District Attorney's Office can still claim jurisdiction. If it passes through New York, we have jurisdiction no matter where it is now, Bogdanos told CBS News in March. If the wire transfer was made in New York, we have jurisdiction no matter where it is now. If it was offered for sale, it was shown at an auction. So sure, my jurisdiction is limited to New York City, but to update a phrase, all roads lead to New York. Dowd attributed Bogdanos's record to his military background, interest in history and the classics, and his nonfiction book, Thieves of Baghdad, an account of his own experience recovering thousands of artifacts stolen from the Iraqi National Museum after the United States invaded Iraq in 2003. 
It's not just some lightweight chasing down pretty pictures because he likes to look at artworks, Dowd added. There's a real unique and deep dedication that goes into this. Next from JTA, Alice Shalvi pioneered religious feminism in Israel. Everyone else is still catching up. By Alana Stokman. I first met Alice Shalvi, the mother of religious feminism in Israel, in the mid-1990s during a meeting of ICAR, the International Coalition of Aguna Rights, a coalition that she founded to advocate for women denied a religious divorce by their husbands. She was in her early 70s at the time and had been fighting for Aguna rights for 20 years. I was in my mid-20s and due to the cause. I was there as co-chair of Mavoy Satum, which a group of us founded in 1995. This coalition was meant to be advancing systemic solutions to this awful problem, but of course we were stuck, as stuck then as we are now. At one point in the meeting, Professor Shalvi started to cry. I am 72 years old. I have been talking about this for so long, she said, and nothing is changing. She was crying because the suffering of women didn't seem to matter to our people. Then she turned to me and said, it's up to you and your generation to fix this. At the time, I felt her passing the mantle, and I didn't want to let her down, but I'm sure I did. At least on this front. On others, too, despite our best efforts. Shalvi, who died Monday morning in Israel at age 96, fought crucial fights decades before the rest of the world caught up with her. Before the religious community had any kind of language for what she was doing, before there was any kind of feminist movement to speak of in Israel. She pioneered feminist ideas in Israel in the early 1970s when there were only a handful of women doing such work. Marsha Friedman, Naomi Hazan, and a few others. And she was the only one coming from the religious world and able to see the need and potential for change before everyone else. Starting in 1975, Shavli began running the Pelech School for Haredi Girls, a religious feminist school before Orthodox feminism existed as a movement, before Women of the Wall, before women's tefillah prayer groups, years before the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance and Kolech, Israel's religious women's forum, existed, before anyone even dared to put the words feminist and religious together in a sentence before even the conservative movement had women rabbis. Everyone else is still catching up. She also worked in the non-religious arena, creating in 1984 the first feminist lobby in Israel, the Israel Women's Network, which, she, which still pioneers on many fronts. She also dared to work on issues of peace, taking positions that were considered pasnisht or unsuitable in the religious world, and for the most part still are. She dared to see Palestinians, especially Palestinian women, as equal human beings. This was not a position that Israelis, religious Israelis, or Israelis in general were comfortable with. It's still an uphill battle. She spoke and acted from a place of humanity first. And she could remarkably work on a multitude of fronts, all at once, including education, academia, advocacy, policy, and peace. Well, that's all the time we have for the Jewish News Hour this week. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you for listening.